Well, unfortunately, the outcome remains that tens of thousands of Ukrainians are dead. Mm -hmm. uh, cities are destroyed, villages are destroyed, fields are, are mined uh, and destroyed. This war has already inflicted a terrible cost and it will continue. This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 140 for the 28th of July, 2022. As you probably heard, we had the interview with Julian Niederrömlen on Tuesday, and the second part of this is the interview in this episode with another German, this time an international relations expert. She takes a starkly contrasting view. No rant today, but don't forget, we want your questions for the summer special question and answer podcast. You can email them to podcast at hereshow.ie in audio or in text format, or even easier, send us a WhatsApp voice message to 086-606-9401. There's a link that you can tap on the website and on the Twitter bio to directly send a WhatsApp message. You don't even have to save the number. We'd love to hear from you. And I just want to say thanks to all of the patrons on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who donates on Patreon. We don't get a huge amount of money out of it. It's not in the same league, even nearly as some other Irish podcasters I could mention. But it pays for things like web hosting and some other small costs. And Kevin and myself basically donate our time for free. It's also a great morale booster. When we get a new patron on Patreon, it lets us know that there are people out there who listen and who appreciate the podcast. We make a big effort to cover things that are undercovered in Irish media, and you're more than welcome to listen for free, but if you think you could do the same as the other donors and throw in the price of an hour's parking in central Dublin once or twice a month, there's details how to do that on the website and at the end of the show. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter and like Here's How on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Jessica Berlin is a commentator at Deutsche Welle News, which is something like the German equivalent of the BBC World Service. She's worked for years with government agencies and the private sector right around the world, specialising in security policy and transatlantic affairs, among other things. And she's recently been outspoken about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And she joins me on the line now from Kiev. Jessica, I'm sure you've heard all the jokes about your name, so you're not in Berlin now, although you have lived there, I know that. But very briefly, what position are you taking about the war following Russia's invasion? Well, there are not very many things in international politics that are black and white. This is such a case. Right now, there is a good side and a bad side. And it's very clear. Russia's invasion is illegal on every every level of uh, and every notion of international law. And it's also simply monstrous in every humanitarian um, and basic sense of decency. Um, they've basically brought Europe back to a 19th or 20th century era of violence that we thought was behind us. So I, I would even, as a, as a foreign policy professional, I would hardly put it as my position on the war. Um, there is, in this moment, no matter what your political affiliation is, only one position to have, that this war must be ended and uh, Russia must be um, beaten out of Ukraine. The killing has to stop. 
You're aware, I know, that we had Professor Julian Niederrömlen on the podcast. He was one of the people who signed this famous letter published in Die Zeit newspaper under the headline Ceasefire Now that was signed by a lot of prominent German intellectuals. What's your view on the stance in that letter? Yes, uh, these letters that have come out several times over the past months from Germany, from so-called prominent intellectuals, it's important to note for an international audience that many of the signatories are um, neither prominent or are using the term intellectual rather loosely. Um, anyone who has a professorship somewhere or has written a book or a novel um, has been invited to sign these things. These are not necessarily, and indeed frequently, um, often not at all, experts on foreign policy, security in general, or Russia and Ukraine in particular. Um, so that's um, first very important to note um, mm -hmm. that the CVs of a majority of these signatories are completely irrelevant to the conflict. Secondly, where is this, where is this strain of ceasefire now uh, pseudo-pacifism coming from? There's an important misunderstanding in a large section of the German uh, progressive center-left um, and far-left, um, and that notion is war is bad, peace is good, war comes from weapons, therefore peace is when there are no weapons, therefore ceasefire, stop now, why can't we all just stop shooting at each other? But what they do not understand is the very basic reality that Russia does not want a ceasefire. Russia is trying to destroy Ukraine. They, they, tr they thought they could take the entire country within a week. That obviously failed. Now they're trying to take as much of the eastern half of the country as they can. There is not an opportunity for Ukraine to negotiate until Russia realizes that it is in their best interest to negotiate. Now, what does that mean? That means that Russia needs to face deterrence, needs to face a loss militarily and economically so great that continuing the war will be more damaging to them than ending the war. And the only way to achieve that is for Ukraine's military to be stronger and for Ukraine to be able to inflict so much damage on the Russian military that it is in Russia's interest for the war to end. That is the only way to cre create a negotiated ceasefire that is actually serious. But right now, with Russia being militarily stronger, they have much more artillery, they have much more money, they have more soldiers. Russia is in a stronger military position, therefore to negotiate, quote unquote, for a ceasefire right now, like the signatories on that letter uh, were pushing for, is basically to tell Ukraine to surrender. And this is, this is a basic, basic understanding of how war works, that unfortunately, for many public commentators in Germany who have never dealt with um, the serious implications of, of warfare um, that they just simply don't understand. And unfortunately, this has taken up a lot of oxygen in the public discourse in my country. And you say that Russia has more money, more weapons and more troops, and that's true. Is it possible to do anything, and can the West or Germany, perhaps also the United States, do anything at all that can overcome the disadvantage that Ukraine has? Absolutely. And it's what we, um, myself and, and many, many colleagues across Europe and the world have been calling for since day one, and indeed even before the invasion, um, to have deterred Russia's invasion before it happened um, and ever since, um, to, to cut it shorter and to cut off Russia's war chest resupplies. 
we should have embargoed Russian oil, and we still can embargo Russian oil. Um, just from Germany alone, over 17 billion euros have been paid from the German purse into the Russian war chest for energy imports. Mm -hmm. And that's in comparison with the approximately 1 billion in aid that Germany has provided uh, to Ukraine since the war began. Um, we've earmarked, I believe, 2 billion for this year. Um, so you can see um, it's just the, the amount of financial support that Russia has received from us compared to what Ukraine has received is dwarfed. Um, secondly, artillery, high-tech heavy weapons. Uh, we need to give the Ukrainian military the capacity to strike Russian artillery positions. And this is, uh, you know, I won't go into the, the technical details of which units and which models um, of weapon that is. Um, some of them have already arrived on the battlefield, but much more are needed. So yes, absolutely, there is very much more that um, the West can do to support Ukraine and also critically to cut off Russian finances coming in from our countries um, and also to strengthen the sanctions against the Russian uh, financial and energy sector. Gazprom is still able to operate, for example, um, hasn't been removed from SWIFT. There is a lot more we could do. And furthermore, um, this is something that the Brits have already begun um, and other countries are looking at, but which we should do with much more expediency, is seize um, Russian assets and fund those directly to Ukraine so that the billions in frozen assets um, of um, corrupt Russian elites around the world um, who have ties to this military and this government in Russia, that those funds are going to support the Ukrainian war effort now. Okay, suppose that everything that you're recommending was done and that it mm -hmm. had the effect that you hope that it would have. What outcome do you get? Well, unfortunately, the outcome remains that tens of thousands of Ukrainians are dead. Mm -hmm. uh, cities are destroyed, villages are destroyed, fields are, are mined uh, and destroyed. This war has already inflicted a terrible cost and it will continue Sure, that's um, that's 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 a given. That's a given. That's a given. Yes, but but in, in geopolitical in but in geopolitical terms yeah. specifically. Well, geopolit. So I'll start with what it would mean for the current situation in the war, mm -hmm. um, and then go into the global context. So the cost has already been terribly high, and even if Ukraine got all the weapons they need, um, and Russian the Russian economy was further cut off, the war would not end tomorrow. Okay, Vladimir Putin will keep pushing and bombing and destroying as far as he can to continue his leverage. He will try to extract as much as possible to save face for himself um, and to try to squeeze something resembling a victory that he can sell to his people um, and to his elites around him, keeping him in power. So it will continue to be bloody. But the point is, the less we do now, the longer it goes. The more we do now, the shorter it goes. So no, no one should think, oh, if we send enough money, the war will be over tomorrow and then everything is fine. Not at all. But this is, this is going to be a long slog. And the more we do now, the quicker it ends. Secondly, on geopolitical terms, crucially important, our ability or inability to act decisively as the not only NATO alliance, but the broader global alliance of democracies. If we are not able to push Putin back, if we are not able to resolutely support Ukraine and help them survive, then this is an open invitation to dictators around the world that nothing matters, they can act with impunity, 
And whether it's China in Taiwan or any other uh, smaller dictatorial regime um, with their eyes on the natural resources or ports or what have you of a smaller neighboring country, if we are not able to save Ukraine from Russia, then they will know that we're not going to bother saving anyone from any predatory dictatorial state uh, looking to expand their reach. So we're entering a very dangerous time in world history, frankly. This is an inflection point of the 21st century. Just like World War I, world War I and World War II defined the 20th century and indeed have defined uh, our geopolitical order until this day, this war is setting the chessboard anew. Mm -hmm. And how we act or, or fail to act will determine the rest of the century. Um, that's unquestionably true. I think you're entirely correct on that. But isn't it the case that an end game from what you're recommending is very uncertain and could be very, very seriously bad? Can you envisage a Russia continuing to be ruled by Putin having been defeated in Ukraine, be ruled by someone else? What, what is the, and in particular, when we were talking to Professor uh, Niederumlin, he did make a point, and I tend to agree with you on this mostly, but he did make a point that I thought was relevant, which is that Russia has the power of escalation. Is there anything that Vladimir Putin has any weapon in his arsenal, which goes all the way up to an awful lot of nuclear weapons, that he would not use, that he would accept defeat and still not use, for example, nuclear weapons. Is that a possibility? So the nuclear has been the number one boogeyman that the German left has unpacked to that we shouldn't help Ukraine because then Russia will start a nuclear World War III. Mm -hmm. And this is a terribly simplistic argument um, that is also, quite frankly, based off of Russia's self-made propaganda. Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin knows that holding out the nuclear red button will create fear in our democratic societies, a fear which our democratically elected officials need to respond to. He's shaping the discourse by putting these things out there. But the professor you spoke with and any other signatories of that letter should be very aware that Vladimir Putin and the billionaire oligarch elites around them very much love their lives. Mm -hmm. They live in luxury. They have all the power. They are not suicidal. And to start a nuclear war would effectively be suicide. Mm -hmm. This is not their goal. So no, no one of course can say that he would never quit uncertainty on something. But there are things we do know that this is not in his interest. What is his interest? To stay in power. Mm -hmm. A nuclear war does not keep him in power. It kills everyone. So this is just on a basic realpolitik level. Um, it's a threat that we need to take seriously. But quite frankly, anyone involved in nuclear deterrence and politics is aware that the lines of communication are open between the nuclear powers in this world as they have been since the Cold War, during and since the Cold War, and there has been no increase in alarm readiness or a nuclear threat, even when Putin has been putting out these statements. And actually, the biggest threat would be if Putin is deposed and replaced by someone who is even more uh, right-wing, extreme, uh, and, and bloodthirsty than he himself. Mm -hmm. So uh, the fallout of a collapse of Putin's government would certainly be a dangerous moment. 
um, just as was the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, there, there, there are always going to be competing factions uh, pushing for power in a power vacuum when a long-term, long-standing regime falls apart. And so it is not clear, it is definitely not clear what will happen to Vladimir Putin in the outcome of this war. But also let's remember, he controls the entire media. So he can create his own fake news narrative of victory however he wants, no matter what the outcome of the war is. This is something that is his to create. It does not require him stanchion flag uh, on the Maidan in the heart of Kyiv for, for Putin to declare victory. He will, he will tell his lies and tell the story as he wishes. And so it's terribly unhelpful for Western Europeans who don't have context, um, both in this region um, and in this level of geopolitics in general, to be coming with these sort of facile, populist, simplistic recommendations of ceasefire now, give peace a chance. Mm -hmm. Everyone right now who is trying to arm Ukraine and support the Ukrainian government and military and people is trying to end the war. That's oh. the goal. Uh, okay, I understand that. And I understand. And I think, by the way, that you're correct in terms of a global nuclear war. I think that's a very low possibility. I don't like it being mm. a low possibility. I would prefer it to be a zero possibility. <laughs> but we all? Indeed, indeed. But that is not the only option that Vladimir Putin has. And he has a lot of steps of escalation that he could take. And I'm wondering, you know, where is that point where he has a step of escalation that he could take, which would prevent him from losing the war, but he wouldn't do it. He doesn't strike me as a terribly moral person. One of those steps, I mean, there are many of them, one of them would be essentially doing what he did to Chechnya, particularly to Grozny, which was essentially to demolish the entire city with artillery and with bombing. He could do that to many Ukrainian cities. Another step would be not to use strategic nuclear weapons, that's to say the uh, missiles that we uh, hear so much about, but to use battlefield, rather smaller nuclear weapons, even if he didn't use the nuclear weapons and just used, for example, what are called thermobaric weapons across civilian areas. It's difficult to judge the point of where Vladimir Putin would say, yeah, I really want to win, but I wouldn't, don't want to win enough to use that weapon, isn't it? Uh, William, he's already done that. You've seen the footage from Mariupol. Mm -hmm. Look at what happen what's happening in the Donbass now. This is already being done as we speak. Mm -hmm. Entire cities, towns, and villages are being destroyed, like we saw in Chechnya, like we saw in Syria. And have no doubt, he will escalate. He would be willing to escalate to chemical weapons, to thermobarics. He's already used white phosphorus. Friends of friends of mine have perished in white phosphorus attacks fighting on the front lines. There, there, is, uh, there, are, there are a few lines that he would not cross, and the international community, the international security community is acutely aware of this. And this is precisely why the support to Ukraine needs to increase. It needs to be clear to Putin that he will face heavier losses which will in turn result in him facing more challenges domestic politically than he currently does mm -hmm. if he's losing the war so badly. So we have no doubt that he will continue to escalate his assault on casualties. He, we have no doubt that he will strike Kiev again um, with missiles. You know, he's already signaled his readiness to do that um, a couple of weeks ago. 
this is a very dangerous time. Um, but the point is precisely that he needs to see that he is outmatched, that he has nothing, no option on the battlefield here but to lose. That's when negotiations will t- take place and, and not a day sooner. Looking at the international reaction, and you will be aware as a student of international affairs that sometimes countries, particularly powerful countries, can behave in extraordinarily cynical ways. One reading of the US position might be that it suits the United States' interests to have the war going on as long as possible for Ukraine not to lose, but for them also not to win, because that would keep Putin in power. It would make it very difficult for his circle and his oligarchs to move against him while they were still fighting, but it would also keep him weak. Is it possible that when some on on the extreme left have said that the West are willing to fight with the life of the last Ukrainian, that although they that might not be coming from a very honest place. That might actually be true. That's a danger, isn't it? It's it's a theoretical um, that I think is based in a not full picture of what's going on here. Um, the entire world is just coming out of COVID recovery. Um, major powers having just had presidential elections. Every country is dealing with their domestic, economic, and political concerns. And then this war came. The United States was focusing, pivoting its focus to China and the Pacific region, and then this came. Um, for to put it rather simplistically, we weren't ready for this. But precisely that was also Putin's calculation. That's why he attacked when he did. He saw NATO crumble and fall apart in Afghanistan in the space of a couple of weeks after 20 years of a mission there, with trillions of dollars spent and thousands of lives lost. Um, He's seen um, the domestic political instability in many of our countries. He knows we are just coming out of COVID recovery and and he struck when the time was ripe. He did not anticipate that the West would so resolutely and so quickly stand up for Ukraine. And so can one criticize the United States or Britain, you know, the the strongest um, of the uh, Western allies who have been supporting. Um, did he underestimate them? Yes. Um, Germany's response, for example, of France's, in my opinion, have been far too weak. Uh, we're stepping up slowly but surely. Um, more weapons exports, more funds, but it's been definitely too little too late. And um, the real bright spot has been the Eastern European powers and the Baltic states, smaller countries who have helped extraordinarily punching above their weight. He did not see this coming. And he's actually he's actually succeeded in uniting NATO and the democratic community as never before in the uh, last uh, 10, 20 years. Not, so, not to mention enlarging NATO. Exactly. <laughs> and he's, yes, and he's also uh, single-handedly responsible for uh, NATO's greatest marketing campaign <laughs> in its history, perhaps. But yeah, yeah. that being said, these these sort of leftist voices um, who are trying to smell a sort of uh, post-colonial imperial American conspiracy here, um, quite frankly, that's not how it works. And we didn't see this coming. We're doing the best we can. Uh, and you can expect to see more support from the United States, not less in the weeks and months to come. Okay, I'm looking at a poll done by RTL in your own country in Germany. And the question is, should Ukraine give up 
territory in exchange for peace. Now, I think that's a very incorrect question because I don't think that that bargain is on offer. But the answer was actually a majority yes, 47% saying yes of German respondents against 41% saying no. Do you think that the, because your country is Germany, do you think that German politicians will have the political space in which to maneuver and increase their support for Ukraine? Absolutely. If they show better leadership and communication skills than they have thus far. Um, firstly, a bit of context on that poll. RTL, RTL is a sort of a tabloid news outlet. Um, all right. So I have not seen the data or the sourcing for that poll, but RTL is not considered hard hitting news. Nevertheless, nevertheless, that poll is terribly important because it shows two things. One, the framing of the question itself mm -hmm. is so toxic. Oh, should Ukraine give up Eastern territories in exchange for peace? As though, as if that were an option on the table. It's not an option. But the fact that a German broadcaster with a wide reach amongst uh, the viewing public, uh, you know, the, the perhaps less educated or more um, populistic entertainment news consuming public, the fact that the question is being posed that way shape the narrative in the minds of German voters. So that's definitely damaging. And number two, the fact that I think it was 47% yeah, or 42% of the respondents um, said yes. 47, yeah. Also, 47, thank you. Yeah, I think it was 41, 42 against. The fact that, that the poll came out this way also shows how the German public does not understand what's at stake in this war. I actually responded to that poll on Twitter, basically reformulating the question to what it actually means. When, when any Western European talks about Ukraine giving up territory, what does that mean? That means that millions of people who live in those territories will be abandoned to being occupied by Russian brutal dictatorial rule. We've seen what happens to the areas of Ukraine occupied by Russian troops. Horrific crimes of babies, adult women and men, and grannies and grandpas. Torture, murder, summary execution. This is what happens to Ukrainians who are occupied by Russia. To give up territory means to condemn every man, woman, and child living in those territories to that fate. So this is the conversation and awareness that needs to be raised in the public, in the West. Our politicians, especially uh, in Germany, need to step up and help the people who have lived in this bubble of peace and prosperity we've enjoyed for so long to realize that the monsters of the last century are back. And once again, we need to step up and fight them. But I think in particular in Germany, where we have such a horrible relationship with military power in our history, uh, that this has, has backfired into a sense that, that there's nothing ever worth fighting for, that, that pure pacifism is the only way. And, and this, could be, this is a noble philosophy, but unfortunately what it means is that then any armed dictator willing to kill and torture and rape to get what they want will face no opposition from us. Yes, I mentioned in that previous interview that I'm talking about, about this 1,000 
word letter advocating a ceasefire now, however unrealistic that might have been. Andrei Melnik, the uh, Ukrainian ambassador to Germany, had a three-word response, which was go to hell. And the professor I was talking to brought up in response to that Andrei Melnik's political tradition that could be said to be related to fascism in Ukraine. Do you think that's a red herring? Do you think that's a talking point that's being produced entirely by Russian favouring interests? Or is there anything to that at all? Uh, this is, um, this is to put it very bluntly, complete bollocks. <laughs> I'm sorry, but trying to, to pin Melnik as a fascist, <laughs> so this is this is the kind of discourse happening in Germany that just is is quite frankly embarrassing. It's it's completely unprofessional. It's based on no fact. Who is this? Who is this professor? Um, I will uh, <laughs> professor of what? My goodness. Um, I I wish I knew more about him. P- but professor of philosophy that- and political theory at Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. But I, and I don't want to do a personal well, attack. But- I want to I want to stay on yes. on, the, on the issue. It is the case that. The current, for example, Azov Battalion is a regular battalion in the Ukrainian army, but it does have historical links going back to the 2014 invasion to people who you know, could not be described as anything other than neo-Nazis. But I'm just wondering, and perhaps because I have to say I genuinely don't know, is right. there any validity to any of that? So it's a very good thing to bring up because this is an example of how the Russian media machine works. Yes, there are some neo-Nazis in the Ukrainian military. Do you know where there are also neo-Nazis in the military? I'm guessing you're going to say Russia. Britain, Germany, Britain, France, Ireland, Spain, Italy, the United States, Canada, Australia, Mm -hmm. and yes, indeed, winning the prize, Russia. There are right-wing extremists and neo-Nazis in every European police force and military. This is a problem we share all across Europe. And Russia has very effectively um, singled in on the Azov Battalion Mm -hmm. for some photos that they got of some soldiers with swastika tattoos, etc., and pushing this since 2014. This is how the Russian media propaganda machine works. They place stories, they sow doubt, And then this becomes what the West talks about. So the fact that having right-wingers in military is a problem that all of our countries face doesn't become the issue. It becomes, oh my God, are Ukrainians Nazis? Please discuss on primetime news. Um, And also, by the way, what doesn't get discussed is that when this came out in 2014-15, huge reform steps were taken and the battalion got cleaned up. Just mm-hmm. like happened also in a German battalion based in, I forget which country, I think it was Latvia or Lithuania, a German battalion that was deployed. They found the barracks had neo-Nazi symbols. There was a thriving right-wing culture going on in this unit. What happened? When the army found out, there was a big scandal. They all got sacked and withdrawn from their post, and it got cleaned up. So, so making this out as, as some sort of uh, crisis of Ukraine and the Ukrainians are all secret fascists, it's literally Russian propaganda and a constructive 
honest conversation about any right-wing presence in Ukrainian military units would be done in the context of this is a challenge we all face and how do all of us deal with it. But I'm here in the country, I'm dealing with the military on an almost daily basis, and the vast majority of the soldiers right now that you see, they are civilians who literally have joined up since the war began to defend their country. People are getting training and deploying because they are literally fighting for their lives and the lives of their children, their wives, their husbands, their parents. They're fighting for their lives. This is this is not a drill. Uh, I, I, the I fact should say that here and there are are right wingers in in certain units um, is a disingenuous framing of the challenge that the military here faces. I, I should say, just for clarity, that there is a far-right party in Ukraine. They didn't score enough in the most recent elections even to get over the threshold to get into Parliament, unlike in several other Western European countries, notably France and Spain. And also there is the Wagner uh, private military group, which is clearly a creature of the Kremlin, which is led by someone who, when he's not posing with Vladimir Putin, shows off his swastika and SS tattoos. But as you say, the Russian Russian influence through the media is significant, and that's a story that it is useful for them to harp on about. I noted that Gerhard Schröder, previously the German Chancellor, Prime Minister, and also François Fillon, former French Prime Minister, were working for Gazprom for many years. A, would you agree with me that that's obviously an element of a Russian influence campaign in the sense that neither of them had any expertise that would have made them useful to a gas and oil company other than the fact that they have political connections. But do you think that some of the reluctance that you've seen, that you've noted to support Ukraine in the West, might be the product of other, you know, more successful and maybe less exposed Russian influence campaigns? Absolutely. What we've seen so far is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, I say this with no pleasure whatsoever, and as a member of precisely zero political parties in Germany, um, what I'm about to say is not a political attack, but unfortunately just an objective assessment of the situation. The SPD is compromised. That would be the Labour uh, Party, the leading party in the German government recently elected. That's right. It's the Social Democratic Party in Germany, the party of our current Chancellor Olaf Scholz. They are compromised. It, explain ethically that. And, uh, yeah, ethically and politically. For, for the entire time... Vladimir Putin has been in office, as well as for decades preceding that, the SPD has worked closely with the Soviet Union um, in the Ostpolitik. Um, of course, it was a different time, different targets, different goals. Uh, but from this era of communication and collaboration um, with the Soviet Union on the East German question that, that was you know, ultimately productive, um, these ties... Um, then evolved through the 90s um, and the 2000s uh, to basically continue with Vladimir Putin and his regime. The can, fact you subs- that can you substantiate the SPD, that? The f- Sorry? Can you substantiate that? Oh, I, I was still talking yesterday. Go ahead, go <laughs> the ahead. Process of doing so. yeah. The fact that the SPD was the champion of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, the fact that the SPD has basically linked the entire German economy to the Russian energy sector was avoidable. This was not necessary. And also, to be fair, it wasn't only the SPD. Um, Chancellor Merkel and the CDU, they were also 
you know, equal equal proponents of this. Mm-hmm. But the SPD has always been the standard bearer um, for closer ties with Russia uh, and Germany. And the problem is, even though now today they can see that they drastically, drastically miscalculated the situation, that they helped create this monster. The problem is, politically, now to admit that they were wrong would basically mean that for the last 20 plus years, they've been wrong. Mm-hmm. And this is this is suicide politically for any party. So even, even for some SPD politicians who've seen the writing on the wall, who've realized their mistake, um, they have not yet found the courage and the positioning to come out and say, we were wrong, but those decisions belong to a different time and even perhaps to try to say a different generation. This would be a time for younger voices in the SPD who bear no personal responsibility for the previous 20 years of German energy policy to come out and draw a line and say, this is the new SPD, no more and never again. But unfortunately, the old guard is still very much in power. This means uh, Chancellor Scholz, uh, the the federal president Steinmeier, um, and their circle of close advisors who are the SPD old guard. They still are the ones in charge. And they are the ones who are personally or have been personally involved in these strong building of diplomatic and economic ties between Germany and Russia. So when I say they are compromised, this is what I mean, that they, they domestically, politically, they would be toast um, if the full extent of their responsibility in creating our dependency on Russian oil and gas would be to revealed. Um, there's also already uh, current scandals around the minister president, this is like the, the governor um, of, of uh, the North Stream 2 <laughs> receiving province that is basically, is the kind of scandals uh, that somehow in another country would lead to instant sacking or resignations, but in Germany it just leads to a shrug and, and people carrying on. Um, I, I really wish I had an answer for why we're not uh, calling our our politicians more to account for this kind of thing. Um, I think, um, as mentioned before, it's tied in with this long bubble of peace and prosperity that Germany has existed in, but that has actually been paid for and protected by, by the bigger hitters in NATO. And now we're being faced with the real world consequences of our economic actions and I think my country people have not yet been engaged enough by our political leadership to understand. And so it'll be a long process, um, both for political accountability and public awareness to catch up with the new reality in Europe. Um, but in a small way, I guess that's also what I'm, what I'm trying to help do as a German security expert who's, who's been around a few other blocks. Jessica Berlin, as you say, German security expert and also commentator for Deutsche Welle News on a slightly wobbly line from Kiev. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you so much. Here's how is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. All right, William. So we're just off from our interview with Jessica Berlin. Recently, we had our interview with Professor Nita Rollman. You seem to be more in agreement with uh, with uh, Miss Ber- Miss Berlin. Is there anything you disagree with or think she didn't handle well? I don't know about she didn't handle well, but I'm not sure 
that she has a completely realistic view of what the end game is. And I think sometimes people can be so cynical and just say, oh, you can't achieve anything, therefore you don't bother trying. She may be slightly on the other side of that effect. And I think there might be a naivety on her side. Uh, I guess the Ukrainian government are not naive about it, that the Russians have the power to crank up and to keep throwing stuff at them. It will be very, very difficult to win this for the Ukrainians. But I think probably it is correct that the Ukrainians can beat the Russians into such a place that when a ceasefire comes, as it will, that it will be relatively advantageous. And obviously, if the Ukrainians just laid down their arms now, that would not be the case. But I think there is somewhat of a naivety when I, I think when I said, you know, the, the Russians can crank it up, they, she, her, I can't remember exactly the words she used, but she essentially said, well, they're giving, uh, the Russians are throwing everything they've got at it now. The reality is that they're not launching nuclear bombs. And it is quite difficult to see how Putin would accept defeat and still have some weapons in his arsenal that he thought it would be better to be defeated than to use, for example, battlefield nuclear weapons. My reading of Putin is that he's not the sort of humanitarian who would accept defeat in order to preserve civilian life. Yeah, I, I wanted to come to how the issue of escalation was handled, because Miss Berlin said something um she said that Putin and his cronies love their lives. Mm -hmm. um, do the rumours that Putin might be terminally ill change that equation? I think a bit. Um, I, and those are rumours, and it's quite advantageous for dictators to put out rumours that they're terminally ill and that they'd be dead within a couple of years. And this is actually quite a common thing to do for dictators because that tells any coup plotters, anyone in the palace who is thinking of taking over from him, that it's not worth taking the risk of, of uh, giving him the bullet now, because if you just wait around for a year or two, he'll be gone anyway. And there have been dictators, examples of dictators who've cultivated rumours of their imminent demise for years and decades. So I'm, you know, I think we don't have access to that information. And I think that uh, Putin and his cronies act largely rationally in their own interests, clearly not in the interests of Russia. And I think they, you know, you can't really see any further than that. But it is also likely that they will just make mistakes. And they thought that they could just easily invade Ukraine and take Kiev. That clearly didn't happen. They could easily make a mistake and think that they could use, like, not strategic uh, nuclear weapons like wiping out cities in North America or whatever, but battlefield nuclear weapons that you blow up smaller weapons across Ukraine to just basically devastate your opposition and make them fall apart. It's possible that they would do something stupid again because they've done thing they've done stupid things in the past. I, yeah. I, okay. I see. So um, the rumors of Putin's illness could be. A kind of a Russian disinformation, kind of spreading a kind of a madman theory of uh, of diplomacy, you know, kind of a Nixon-esque kind of uh, strategy. But um, you are assuming that he will act rationally, and may perhaps there is some evidence that he is either 
acting irrationally or making major mistakes, which maybe are not factored in. Um, yeah, I mean, you can only assume that he can act rationally because you can model rationality. You can't assume that he's going to act irrationally because you can't model what sort of irrational uh, he will follow. So I think the best you can do is model him acting rationally and know that, you, you know, if you get, 80, get it 80% right, you'll be lucky. Never miss a show. Follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter and like Here's How on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and references from the show. And while you're there, you can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Here's How Podcast, and follow Jessica Berlin at Berlin underscore bridge. And get in touch if you can suggest a guest or a topic for the next show. Thanks again to all of the patrons on Patreon. As I said, we don't get anything like what some other Irish podcasts that I could mention get, but it pays for things like web hosting, and we basically do the podcast for free. If you could do the same as the current patrons and donate the price of a litre of petrol or even a litre of water once or twice a month, then please do go and sign up at patreon.com slash here's how. That link is on the website. Also there you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. All that information is at www.hereshow.ie. And don't forget, we want your questions for the summer special question and answer podcast. You can email them to podcast at hereshow.ie in audio or text format, or even easier, send a WhatsApp voice message to 86 606 9401. And there's a link that you can tap on the website and on the Twitter page to directly send you to a WhatsApp message. You don't even have to save the number. We'd love to hear from you. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Kevin Wolf. Thank you for listening. Listener.